Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for tuning in for another episode. I'm talking to Michael Trail today. Eagle-eyed listeners will recognize Michael from their feed and the episode we recorded back in June 2018, episode 17, that some of you may want to go and listen to as well. In that episode, we first introduced the concept of impact investing to our listeners, the idea that you can invest in an organization or a business venture that will provide a very strong social outcome and also a very good economic return. We talked to Michael in this episode about the organization Purpose Investment Partners that he's co-founded and put together a really all-star team that aims to provide strong returns in the realm of 9 to 10% per annum and providing great social outcomes by investing in disability accommodation, affordable housing, mental health and skills and training. We talked to him about it's really the, the secret source of the network of people he's got involved in this organisation, their experience and their ability to open doors and the networks they have, as well as their not-for-profit not status that gives them a competitive advantage in the space. We talk about how there doesn't have to be a trade-off by investing for good and being able to get great economic outcomes as well. And in many cases, it's actually a driver of return. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I certainly did. Michael has a fantastic track record in financial markets, whether it be his founding of Macquarie Private Equity Business or Social Ventures Australia, which put together the great deal of buying out ABC Learning and into Good Start Early Child Care, which we spoke a little bit in this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. As always, we encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and note that this podcast is not designed, nor is it specific advice, and we encourage people to receive their own advice before making any possible investments. Have a great day. Michael Trail, welcome to Inside the Rope. Nice to be with you, David. Thanks for joining us again. Um, it was actually it went back and had a look. It was uh, June 2018 when you came on in episode 17. We've just passed 100 episodes uh, over the last two years. So it's great to have you back on. Thanks for carving out the time. And uh, it actually sounds quite exciting, um, uh, this new fund that you're talking about and also uh, for purpose investment partners. Perhaps you could just as a little reminder for some of those listeners who have joined us of more recent times and weren't didn't listen to episode 17. Um, maybe you could just talk about yourself a little bit and, and put that into for purpose investment partners that you've set up, please. Yeah, no, very happy to and delighted to be a repeat visitor with you, David. And uh, there's been quite a bit of progress since that original conversation we had in 2018. But just as a reprise, a quick potted personal and professional history. I was uh, involved as a co-founder of Macquarie Bank's original private equity business from the late 80s and worked there for 15 years, which I really enjoyed. We invested uh, close to half a billion in 42 businesses at the front end of Australia's developing venture capital private equity market. Uh, enjoyed that, enjoyed building a team around that. We had a pretty successful track record. Our rate of return pre-fees was over 30%. and. Um, Great experience to work at Macquarie in those formative years. Um, I left that in 2002 to set up an organisation called Social Ventures Australia. And I wrote a book about that called Jumping Ship. And, and what the idea behind Jumping Ship was 
really it shared the personal story and personal journey as a kid who grew up in country Victoria in a community that would probably now be regarded as a postcode of disadvantage. Um, Dad was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school. My brother and I had the privileged opportunity, courtesy of the care and love of our parents and values around having a crack at education uh, to move out of that community and go on and do different things. But that background and the opportunity to grow up in a, in a place where kids came from very different backgrounds and many in truth were kind of let down by low expectations of the school or of the community or came from pretty challenging family circumstances. So, you know, that kind of sticks in your DNA and I've always had a deep interest in that broader landscape of disadvantage and, and education. And when I left Macquarie, it wasn't because I didn't enjoy Macquarie, it was because I was trying to answer a, a deep personal question, which is, could I apply whatever it was I'd learned in 20 years of business and private equity experience and try and use that to make some sort of difference in the community? And, and the idea that sat behind Social Ventures Australia was very simple, but very powerful. Could you apply business and private equity skills to back not business entrepreneurs, but social entrepreneurs, people who work in communities and are making a difference? And um, that idea of combining business disciplines and social purpose sat at the centre of SVA, Social Ventures Australia. Um, I was chief executive there uh, until 2014 and um, SVA continues to grow and do well under the leadership of uh, a fantastic CEO in Susie Riddell, now a hundred person plus organisation. Um, so that was, that was a great experience, but specifically what brings us to the impact fund uh, that I've been proud to work in partnership to build was that while at SVA, we were involved in a very interesting, unique transaction. We bought out of bankruptcy the old ABC childcare centres. For those of your listeners with a long corporate memory, they might recall that in the back end of 2008, ABC, which was the biggest provider of childcare in the country, was on the front pages of the Fin Review for all the wrong reasons. It had gone bankrupt, and it had gone bankrupt from a storied history of growth where at its peak it had a market value of 2.6 billion, but that ended in tears and receivership. And uh, with other nonprofit leading organisations, including Mission Australia, the Benevolent Society, which is New South Wales' oldest charity, and the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, we formed a really unique consortium and we managed to raise $165 million to buy out of bankruptcy ABC. And we called it Good Start early learning. And the focus was this with this billion dollar plus revenue organisation with 700 childcare centres around the country, 11% market share. The design principle that sat behind that, that reflected deep learnings we'd had at Social Ventures and elsewhere was that if you applied business disciplines but ran this explicitly with an emphasis on quality and on the social impact that it could make in that critical area of early learning and childcare, you could really make a difference, not just to the community, but you could actually run this thing in ways that generated long-term, decent commercial returns. And there are a lot of people who didn't believe that, who felt, look, this uh, the idea that you can generate decent returns and do some social good, you know, it's hard enough doing both of those things separately, impossible to combine it together in one entity. Uh, we didn't agree with that. Um, and the short of a longer story, and I was on the board and chaired Good Start over the decade since, is that Good Start really delivered on all of those fronts. Uh, the investors in Good Start got a 12% return over eight years, which by any measure is a really solid, appropriate, risk-weighted return. 
And Good Start's made a measurable difference in a range of key social impact areas. We emphasised quality, uh, and there are a bunch of proof points around the quality of what happens in the centres, everything from the quality of people that we hired, uh, increasing dramatically the number of degree qualified early learning teachers. We emphasised inclusion, really looking to support uh, communities uh, that were really struggling, like the one that I grew up in, and, and provide them with the resources so all families and children, particularly those from tougher backgrounds, could get into the centres and benefit from the quality of those environments. And the third area of impact was around advocacy, the idea that we wanted to build partnerships with government because government uh, from a policy and funding point of view is a really important player through childcare benefits and repates. So that, those social impact domains of emphasis on quality, emphasis on inclusion, uh, emphasis on advocacy and positive government relationships were what sat behind the success of Good Start. And then to connect that to the the social impact fund that I've been involved in, in working with a terrific quality team to raise. Um, the idea is really simple, is that if you think about the common dynamics of Good Start, that applies in many areas, big areas of the economy and the community that we live in. Think aged care, uh, think education in further education, think social and affordable housing, think mental health. These aren't small fragmented sectors of the economy. They have all of the elements of Good Start. Uh, they, they have big dollar demands to be run effectively. They need business disciplines and strategic thought and nows for them to be run at national scale. And if they're run effectively for investors, they can deliver really, really good quality long-term returns. So the social impact fund that I've been involved in working with others in, in raising and through the, through the CODA network and a range of supporters who back these investments, who are investors in Good Start and other things that the entity behind the fund, which is called For Purpose Investment Partners, itself a nonprofit, is committed to the idea that there's some great opportunities for investors both to do well and to do good. And that's what the fund's about. And, and Michael, tell us a little bit about For Purpose Investment Partners. Who, who have the people that you've brought together uh, to, to do that? Because in my view, um, that may be part of your secret sauce in that uh, for many of these long-term investments, it's actually the people who are involved that you're really backing. Yeah, look, it's, it's such an important point, David. And if, if there was one critical lesson of the 15 years uh, that I was privileged to work at Macquarie and people like uh, David Clark, who was founding chair of the bank and Tony Berg, founding chief executive, you know, the not negotiable was work with high quality people, find high quality people to back. And that's certainly what sits behind for purpose investment partners. And the dynamic is just a super quality team who've got a depth of commercial background, but are really passionate and motivated about the idea that we can make a social impact difference. So that the partnership behind that, uh, my long-term uh, friend and professional colleague, Mark Carnegie has been a generous supporter across the philanthropic landscape. Uh, he was one of the uh, founding backers and, and really the instigator with me in setting up for purpose. We've had terrific uh, support from the Paul Ramsey Foundation and from the Macquarie Group Foundation and uh, members of each are on the, on the board of, of For Purpose. Don Luke, our chair, is a legend in the funds management business. He was founding chief executive of Sun Super. He had a five-year stint as chief executive of Anglicare in Queensland. So you can see 
a depth of business and social purpose dimension. Uh, we've got super quality partners in the business. Uh, it's been a, a, a great pleasure to work with Andrew Thorburn, who was formerly, as your listeners will probably be aware, Chief Executive of National Australia Bank, uh, passionate and motivated about the impact space. Chris Yu, who has a, a real depth of, of private equity background. Uh, Tim Shaw, three decades of global property experience. And they're all motivated, like I am, by the same thing, that the deal opportunities are there. If you can do that with a, a deep ethical and social impact lens, you can drive sustained, high-quality commercial returns. I think the other point worth making, David, is that we're a non-profit. That's pretty unusual uh, for a fund manager. Um, my strong belief, having been involved in the formation of social ventures and a good start, is that you can access super quality talent, pay people reasonably well by non-profit standards. Um, you don't have to pay the fat bonus payouts that apply in private equity or investment banking land. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but the fact that we're a non-profit speaks to what we're trying to achieve. But back to your point about partnership, it means we've got really quite unique access and connections in the landscape. Let me give you a practical example. If there's a large community or faith-based owned aged care player, and we're talking to them about the opportunity for an investment partnership, and we're a non-profit, and we care deeply about quality measurement and social impact, but we know how to do that in ways that align that with decent commercial returns. We have a very aligned conversation because they get that our objectives are deeply aligned with them. And I don't want to sound like poacher turned gamekeeper, but there is an element of in conventional private equity of buy something. If you've got an opportunity to sell it in the short term, you do that. Uh, you sell it at uh, some sort of premium. You take your incentive fee and you move on to the next deal. And that cycle can be as short as you know three to five years. Our time horizon is longer dated. Um, that means while this uh, while you're committed to working these things over long over the long term, our approach is as Good Start and other deals we've been involved in prove you can generate really quite high yields that are very very attractive, and and we believe that long term focus on quality, long term focus on we don't want to take on a lot of uh, aggressive debt, but we want to provide investors with high yield. I talked about Good Start generating 12%, two deals that for purpose has been involved in. Uh, the most recent of which Catalyst Education, which is a provider of further education, think Certificate 3, Diploma in Early Learning, Aged Care Disability Services, that's structured with a 12% coupon note, uh, somewhat akin to Good Start, and with the opportunity for a higher return if the business does well and, and you refinance. So you can see um, this picture is of high quality, reliable yields, uh, long-term focus on quality service delivery, and if you've got a talented team that can find those deals, and we do, and the ability to establish unique partnerships because we're deeply valued, aligned with a lot of the major players in the, in the social purpose sector, and we have, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the special source. And the areas of focus that you're talking about being disability accommodation, affordable housing, mm -hmm. mental health, and skills and education training, I would imagine are reasonably open to some legislative risk. Um, how do you manage that legislative risk? How do you think about that? And I'm also guessing that part of that secret source is the people that you've got in the room in terms of being able to have access 
and also a viewer and experience on that as well. That, that, that uh, question about regulatory risk is a really important one. And you fingered something that's really critical that's common in all those sectors, David, which is the, the common denominator is they're all areas where government at a policy and funding level is a deeply significant player. So for example, in Good Start, billion dollars in revenue, 60% of that revenue is actually from government in the form of childcare benefits and rebates. Uh, in aged care, that number is closer to 70%. So you're spot on making an assessment about the regulatory environment because it can kill a business very quickly if that changes dramatically or the, or the government reduces funding. So the approach on that is twofold. One is um, generally these are areas where there's strong bipartisan support across the political divide to continue to fund and support those. Now, while that can vary a bit election to election, um, these typically are sectors where government is likely to be a player. But within that, you want to have good quality relationships with government. And there's a second point as well, which is there's always a bit of risk, particularly in the Australian political context, where at a federal level, we have notoriously short electoral cycles that actually, if you have a slightly longer term view over seven to 10 years, rather than three to five years, we, we do believe that you're less likely to get caught in a short term swing, where, for example, government policy can change in the in the long term history will teach you in those sectors there will generally be a consistent support and growth but that can change a little bit in in the short term again that lends itself to our approach which is you have a longer term view you don't over gear over leverage these businesses but as part of that and i certainly had this experience at good start it goes back to the values alignment if the government knows that you're a deeply uh, focused on impact and, and social purpose, you can have a set of relationships that are very powerful and impactful with, with, with government because they, they trust the fact that you're really focusing on the right things. They're less, they're, they're, they're frankly less likely to do you over. You know, Good Start was a major player in the sector. Uh, we provide a lot of input into the government. For example, the Productivity Commission did a major review on early learning, and we're very happy to openly share data about what's going on in the sector. Uh, we were supportive of improving quality, which, which can cost the government. We can say, hey, if you do this and you increase the ratio of degree qualified teachers, or if you increase the ratio of staff to children in the centres, we'd love to do that and support that. And here's what actually happens in terms of the balance around contribution and costs and and there's a deep understanding that if you're transparent around that and we clearly are and you're emphasizing quality and we clearly were and continue to be you have a different dynamic with government and that's subtle but significant on that on that point that I was making before around advocacy is an important part of this and if governments know that you're around for the long haul with the right intentions you know that's a precondition for generally pretty good relationships with government and that's important. And Michael, I think the fund is aiming to be roughly 50% exposed to real assets like those in the disability accommodation or affordable housing area. And then the other 50% exposed to services businesses that may be, for instance, in the mental health or skills and education training sectors. Why that split and, 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 and how did you come up with that? That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's our intent, and it's based on a couple of things. One is we see opportunities across both, both of those areas, and just to talk to them in a little more detail. So the, uh, particularly in the social and affordable housing space, and we've got a seed deal in the fund that's in the disability 
housing space supported by the NDIS. They tend to be, and this is generalising slightly, but they tend to be slightly more conservative. They're backed by property. We've been finding yields uh, of 7 to 10% pretty safely achievable in, in that area, which is attractive. Um, and then if I look at, if you look at deals like Good Start, so when we invested in Good Start, um, that was a, a services focus. Uh, none of the properties were owned by Good Start. So in that sense, a more traditional service delivery operating business without that asset backing. And in that case, um, the coupon, as I'd mentioned, was 12%. And we think returns of 12% to high teens would apply in the catalyst education example I mentioned, you know, a base case shows a return in the mid, in the mid to high teens. So we think there'll be ballpark a kind of, and this reflects both what we've done and what we're seeing in the deal pipeline at the moment, a kind of 50-50 allocation. And if, you know, the simple maths on that is with that spread, we, we believe a, a post-fees return of nine or 10 percent is pretty comfortably, uh, pretty comfortably achievable. And uh, Michael, um, what sort of obviously mental health is is a massive issue, and COVID lockdown seems to have ex exasperated the issue. Um, what sort of investment opportunities and social outcomes do you think will present themselves through the through the fund in that mental health area? So we've been looking at a range of opportunities there. That's that's actually one that's slightly more challenging at the moment um, in the sense that while we're seeing opportunities, and I think this is a, a good thing in many respects, the government's been uh, investing and providing a lot of grant funding into, into that space. And so the opportunities, and, and again, this is back to where this conversation started, we, we're very, very careful about identifying opportunities that provide appropriate commercial returns. And there's a clear delineation between that and what government can and should fund. And they're doing a lot in the mental health space, which I'd applaud, which is more particularly in the COVID context, grant funding to support programs. Some of the opportunities we're seeing, uh, for example, are early intervention programs where there's a, a sound and ethical commercial basis for those being rolled out to corporates and to employers where there's a visible benefit from that being done well, driving productivity, uh, higher productivity and workforce attendance. And so there's a couple of opportunities we've seen on that front that, 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 that we're exploring. But um, I would say of all of the areas that we're looking at, that, that one's possibly more challenging, but for kind of appropriate reasons at the moment. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about deal flow and your competitive position in that deal flow? You know, for I, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to think about the fact that 15 years ago, if you're a software-focused venture capital fund in Australia, you, you could pick and choose what deals you wanted to do and on what terms. And fast forward today, you're one of many um, and you have to rely on either your reputation in the market or otherwise to try to invest in the next Canva. I'm interested to know, obviously, you've got the who's who of the investment world uh, and social outcomes in philanthropic world in, involved in the venture, in the, in the for-purpose investment partners. How, how are you finding, A, the volume of deals you're looking at and then your competitive position at the table once you're getting into them? Yes, yeah, so we, the, we're seeing quite a few uh, interesting opportunities and a lot of them uh, reflect conversations where we can have 
an engage, what I'd call an engaged seat at the table with the boards and CEOs of some of the leading larger scale, either community or faith-based players in, in aged care, um, some, in, some, some in education. And what that looks like is that they, uh, you know, there's one that's, that we're looking at at the moment, for example, it's, a, it's in aged care space, it's community owned. Uh, they had a, a pretty aggressive strategic expansion. And as a result of a recent review, they're saying, look, we probably want to uh, sell some of the portfolio we're not just selling to the highest bidder. We want to sell to an ethically aligned buyer. Um, that will hopefully translate into a more an investment partnership conversation is that this is an asset of interest to us. We think we can run it well. We don't want to be paying a premium price. We want to do so. And here's who we are and how we operate. So that you can see that's a, a subtly but very significantly uh different sort of conversation than just just being you know part of the roadshow and selling it selling it to the highest bidder um, the, the other thing is that we're quite happy to play in, in the in the more traditional commercial space we'll be very careful about obviously not overpaying but as a non-profit um, you know the the catalyst education business for example we bought that out of private equity ownership uh, we, we think we bought that prudently but uh, to your point about using those networks, what we've found with Catalyst Education, which has got a good presence in Victoria, but is yet not a truly national organisation, we can have partnership conversations with purchasers of that service, which is high quality trained people who've done the Cert 3 and Diploma, uh, that are very different. So we can have and have had partnership conversations with leading aged care providers, with organisations like Good Start uh, and say, look, we're ethically aligned with what you're trying to do. We'd love to have a long-dated partnership in providing high-quality training uh, for your people and to build your employment pipeline. And I don't think that's a conversation that a traditional commercially or private equity-owned enterprise can have. So you can see that's that's really value accretive at both a quality and an economic level. And so, you know, it goes back to your point around if you've got those networks and the capacity to have those conversations at a different level, and we do, that makes a material difference in terms of both the deals you see, the opportunity you have to convert them. And then most critically, when you're involved in working in partnership, your ability to add value and, and what I think of as ethical growth, not growth for growth's sake, but ethical growth where you're adding quality and social impact, but there's an attendant set of positive economics about that as well. Well, Michael, thank you very much. I think that's been a fantastic summary. And uh, one of our other guests who's been on the podcast a couple of times uh, and a partner of mine at Coda, Frank McIndoo, uh, refers to you as one of the tenacious, most determined people that he's come across. And I'm sure that determination will be put to good use in, in ensuring that this fund and, and these line of investments are a success. Thank you very much for your time. I'll leave you with the uh, last say, if you have any other points for, for our listeners. Um, but other than that, thank you for joining me. No, thanks so much for the opportunity, David. And look, the closing punchline is really simple and powerful, which is if you operate things with business discipline for social purpose, you absolutely can drive decent, high-quality commercial returns that would be of appeal to your investor base and do a lot of good at the same time. What a great combination. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. 
You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.